Welcome to episode 47 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Cohen. And welcome back, Sarah. Whoop, whoop. I am so happy to be back. We're very happy to have you back. How are you doing? I am doing great. Great. Life is moving along as normal and things are great. Awesome. <laughs> it's a lot of great. It's a lot of great. Great, great, great. <laughs> Tony the motherfucking tiger. Does not have a thesaurus in your new life, but otherwise doing very well. No, okay. I do not have a thesaurus. No. <laughs> I did not obtain one while I was gone. That's one of those weird things that, like, I wanted one day and was like, oh my god, I would love a dictionary and a thesaurus, and because no one buys them anymore, they're like a thousand dollars, and I don't even mean that as a joke. I mean, like, a real, like, what? Webster's complete professional dictionary is like 500-something dollars, and I was like, nope, I have the internet, I'm good. That's one of the reasons people don't buy them anymore. Oh my god, that's, that's... <laughs> You can get, like, a small dictionary for, like, a reasonable price. But, like, if you go look at dictionaries, it then says, like, professional grade, complete English-American dictionary, and those are four or $500. And I was like, mm, I guess I'm just keeping on the internet, Googling. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> this is, like, the most excitement-slash-announcement-heavy episode, so <laughs> we now finally actually have our very beginning tiny merchandise. Yes. So Mandy has been making us shirts and masks that say probably Polly. Oh, I saw those and I'm so excited about them, guys. Oh my god, they look so great. We've seen some photos going around if you follow our Facebook or, or our website that show us off wearing our fantastic new shirts. And Mandy, do you want to say more about that and where they can get them? There is a link on our Instagram and also on our Facebook. And also at the end of this episode. And maybe we can try and get one up on the website, too. That seems doable, <laughs> but I don't even know where it would go. <laughs> Somewhere. Maybe we could just stick it on the donations page somewhere. Your best bet is to check Facebook or Instagram. Or again, the description of this, because the description is propagated everywhere. Oh, okay. So in the description for this, somewhere in that description is going to be the link for this. So if you're looking at it on <laughs> iTunes, if you click through to the description, you'll find it. If you're oh. looking to it on SoundCloud and you click through the description. So yeah, the best way is if to follow us on Facebook or Instagram or any social media we use. That's always going to be the most guaranteed way to find stuff. But if you don't have those services, whatever you're on right now listening to us hearing our voices in the description for that is the link for this and it's going to bring you to the mandy makes merch etsy site which is what we're having to use right now and so go through there masks are there and t-shirts are there with the probably probably poly logo and a i want to say that's listed on there how much of the proceeds go directly to the podcast they do benefit the podcast so please Buy the merch, show it off, and share it with your friends. So another thing we have upcoming sometime in the next month or so is we are actually going to put together something that shows all the donations we've ever received to, to date at the end of this last year and how we spent them, what we have left, and what they're earmarked for. And then we're going to start doing that at the end of every year as sort of an accountability, transparency. It'll have subcategories like pure donations, sponsored by merchandise purchases, etc. And we're going to start putting that up so that you can look at how it's getting spent and how little it really is, because it's not a lot. I think a lot of people think we might get more donations than we do, which might be, <laughs> you know... Diffusion of responsibility is one of the things that's really an impairment to moral responsibility is everyone always assumes everyone else is doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I'll donate at some point, but I'm sure everyone else is. And I promise you everyone else is not. <laughs> so, so, Which is one of the reasons that we're, why we're doing the merch. 
So Yeah, it's one of the reasons why we're doing the merchandise, and it's also one of the reasons why some of the things we've said we're going to get done haven't exactly gotten done, because you know, we don't necessarily have the money to get enough help to do it quickly enough, so we're doing it in the odd hours when we can, but okay, uh, let's go on. So I got an email. It's from a nice person. A nice, I would assume a nice person, because they emailed me. A nice person in Ireland, <laughs> and this is like my first big email from someone. Mandy's gotten emails before. She hasn't gotten a listener question yes. before, so this person sought out Mandy's <laughs> advice in particular. People have sought out my advice before, but not in this platform. So it was awesome. It was really cool. I did the Blues Clues. I just got a letter. I just got a letter. <laughs> did it. I danced all of it. So thank you to the person who sent this to me. I'm not going to name names because we don't do that. Unless they ask, which sometimes people do. Oh, yeah, no. But if you don't explicitly ask to be named, then we don't name you. Yeah. And do our best to obscure your identity. It is one person in Ireland. That's all we'll say. It is a longer email. They cite that they're in a same-sex relationship and they've been with their partner for 17 years and they have a son. Probably beneficial to say that they are in a monogamous relationship. This person has developed feelings for a mutual friend of theirs that is a little younger. They came out to their partner and said they had feelings... How about we be Polly? The partner was angry, was heartbroken, felt betrayed. They got through Christmas, but there have been many, many, many long nights, lots of tears, exhaustion between the both of them trying to work this out. And they are worried about the relationship and fear that it may be over. And they worry about the effect that it's going to have on their son. They are starting to go to couples counseling because they both want the marriage. They want the relationship and are trying to work through it. But I think that this person is having, well, they, they cite that they're having problems just completely turning off those feelings for the other person. They were also really, really disappointed that their partner, who's super open, part of the LGBTQ community, progressive in other ways, really demeaned and put down their feelings and made it sound like it was just about sleeping around and that it was something that people do, let's say it's quote, something that people do in their 20s and then they grow up, get sense and settle down. That it'll never work and it messes up their kids. So they end with, they say that the only podcast that they've heard, given that they are a newer listener for us, the only other podcasts they've heard are people who've already opened their relationships or a person brings it up and they are excited, the, uh, the partner's excited, and then they go off and live happily ever after. They navigate their conflicts and everything is kosher. So they say, for me, I've been with my partner for 17 years. So far, any couple they've read about who opens up their relationships only been together for a couple years, for a few years. So it's not as much as a bombshell, maybe. The listener... They sign the email M, so let's call them M, like the letter. M wants to know if we have any advice for a couple trying to open up where they have been together for 17 years. That's a long time. Um, and maybe one of them's not so open to opening. We used to do this. We'd do like an intro question and then sort of the longer topic. And we are doing that this way, by the way, for people listening. The big reason for this is I think most of the content, the contentful information has actually been covered in previous episodes, which we're going to relay you to. But there were some specific elements that, as they said, had never been covered. And we wanted to at least address the never been covered 
favorite elements to sort of fill in the blanks, as well as tell them and other people who might have similar questions where they can look. The first thing is just to note, we have two episodes that are about these issues. The episode opening your relationship is obviously all about how we open relationships. And in that we do exactly what they say, which is we all talk about how we opened our relationships and it worked out. And one of the things I would say to that is probably if it didn't, the chances that like if their relationship completely imploded and their life exploded, the chances that they ended up in the non-monogamy community quickly go down. So it might have taken them longer to transition after a traumatic experience like that. And the chances that they are running a podcast promoting how awesome it is also go down. And therefore, the chances that you'll hear about it are less likely. And also, a lot of people don't want to talk about their failures on a podcast or they're trying to talk about how good they are at making relationships work. So you're also less likely to hear it even if they had that experience. So if you think about it, actually, my becoming polyamory story, the context shifts it oddly, but it's sort of a similar situation. I was with someone with for less time for like a year and a half. And we were talking about getting married, talking about moving in together. And we had issues that led to us doing this temporary breakup. But the whole plan of the temporary breakup was that we would get back together once we would worked out those issues. And I started dating another person while we were trying to figure out what that was going to look like. Not they were also dating someone else. Like we had ended up going off and dating other people. They broke up with the person they were with. I was still with this person. And they said, well, can we get back together? And I was like, well, I'm not going to date the person I'm with. And they were like, well, then you can't date me. And I had to choose mm -hmm. between them. The person I had broken up with wanted me to break up with my current partner to get back with them if we were going to get back together. You know, and that, the, the famous line, you can't have us both. Right. And I had to yeah. actually sit there and decide I could have either. At that moment when they said, you can't have us both, I had the opportunity to choose the partner that I had had and had been dreaming about having a life with for a year and a half, two years at this point, or the partner that I was with for only a few months. Mm -hmm. And of course, I ended up choosing the partner I was only with for a few months because I felt like they hadn't really done anything to deserve being broken up with. Right. I cared about both of these mm -hmm. people. The other person and I had had this falling out. And also during that time, I, you know, I wanted to be more open. I wanted to have that possibility. And especially important to me was that the new person I was with was actually really willing to have those conversations about how I still really wanted to be with that other person and sort of, and they wanted what was best for me. Right. They were like, if you want to go back with them and break up with me, I understand. If you want to stay with me, I'm very excited. So I was like, well, I'm not going to break up with this person to right. go back with this person that was riddled with jealousy and problems and right. philosophical differences and issues. So in a sense, there were two relationships I was interested in because that's what prompted me. I think everyone at some point gets prompted to think about polyamory because they're stuck in a relationship Yeah. and want another one. In a sense, that did happen. I don't usually frame it that way because of the, the technical wording involved, which was we were technically broken up when it happened. Uh -huh. and, and so that is definitely a thing and you'll hear if you listen to more of our episodes that it's uh, i think the episode the email said you're sort of a newer listener yes. in almost every problem we talk about we're like but you might have to break up yeah yeah yeah. Or at least transition down the relationship to like friends or nesting partners, non-sexual yeah. friendship. So we always have, but you might have to break up in every answer to everything. But you might not be compatible. Mm -hmm. And of course, the longer you're with somebody, those things are harder. Yeah. So the 17 years that you've been together is it's going to be harder to transition down if you need to. It's going to be obviously it's going to be harder to uncouple if that's what has to happen. Yeah. But I mean, I think that 
that we say it multiple times in other podcasts that you have to, you have to really decide which is more important to have. I had a thought while listening to M's letter here. They said that they were going to this couple's counseling if that counselor is poly-friendly or if they understand the dynamics of polyamory. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it would certainly be more beneficial if you are going to a poly-friendly or poly-educated counselor about this. And it's really going to be a weird one because if your partner thinks that polyamory is a sham, then they think that poly-friendly counselors are a sham. Mm -hmm. And you as being a person that believes in polyamory are going to think that non-poly-friendly counselors are functionally a sham because they're uneducated in what you're doing and against you and are going to say that you're wrong all the time and are therefore not really going to meet your needs of getting your feelings listened to appropriately. So I think it's going to be really hard to find that compromise person. But if you could find someone that is educated in that, that your partner would be willing to go to, that would be a great idea, which is the other thing. We have the standard litany of things we suggest, obviously couples counseling with a poly-friendly or ethically non-monogamous friendly or consensual non-monogamy friendly therapist. Mm -hmm. The other episode to look at is consent case study. And that might be one you didn't notice, but it's specifically about a person who wrote us whose partner seems so far and may may always be unwilling to open their relationship. And it's all about the decision making process of do I end the relationship that I'm in to open my relationship, even if that's what it means. And if I do, how do I do that ethically as far as making sure that people are financially safe, that the children are safe, that the long term consequences of the relationship are safe. So in a lot of ways, it's all about what you're talking about. And so that's why we're trying not to replicate too many elements for people who've already listened to that episode for the rest of our listeners. Some of the things being quick, all the studies about polyamorous families that they they do have show that they do better with children because it's just more parental attention. Mm -hmm. Just like extended families do better with children. It honestly feels like like a cohesive no-brainer. More parents that care about your kid are helpful. Even if they don't care about your kid, they provide more time and more resources and resource concentration is beneficial for children. Humans almost certainly are a multi-mater, multi-male, multi-female mating species because additional resources from close-knit groups benefited children. That's pretty much how all evolution works. There's a whole book, Sex at Dawn, you can read that's sort of a case study on why you should think that that's the case and we're not naturally monogamous. So I mean, those are just sort of a throwaway. That's just sort of a, a silly, well, it's bad for kids. Cool. Find me one thing that shows it's bad for kids anywhere. And you can't. You won't. Because there isn't anything that shows that. It's not. Yeah. The only thing that I've read that is cited as a not positive is that sometimes children get attached to partners and that that's more difficult. But that's the way it is with any split family at all. Divorcees, it's the same story. And it's it's worse with divorcees because divorcees, the kids are still fantasizing about the idealized two-parent household. Mm -hmm. And so they're attaching to this new person as the completion of their life cycle Mm. as opposed to something temporary. But yes, obviously a rotating door of important, not important Mm -hmm. people is a problem. So we have some episodes on raising kids ethically. You can go check those out and integrate those into your discussions. Like, I don't know what the name of the top of my head is, but you can say, you know, we're going to do this system to make sure the kids stay safe. I'm not going to necessarily introduce them to my partners until this, this, you know, until certain conditions are met that make that person um, as reliable as they can be, just like you would do if you were dating singly. Right. But everything else, that is the only thing that I've seen cited that could be possibly a downfall to parenting with a within polyamory as far as how it affects the children. Yeah, well, and I don't know how old the kids are either. They've been together 17 years. They're probably much older. Under 10. 
There's one child under the age of 10. That is in the range where they might get hurt still if you overly. But I mean, yeah, you, you're going to discuss with your partner who the kid gets to meet and come in contact with. And you're not just going to bring your partners over all the time if you're concerned about your child's welfare. That's not going to be an issue. Right. Um, yeah. And that's something you could work out if they were open to it. The next big thing is, as much as you feel like non-monogamy is an orientation for you, your partner surely feels or seems to feel that monogamy is an orientation for them. And so there's there's not always a way to reconcile that. In fact, there's rarely a way to reconcile that if that's how the person feels about it. So you can't say it's unfair of them to deny me my non-monogamy because you got up and in front of friends and family swore that you would never do this thing that now you're asking to do. So of course that's going to be confusing and painful for someone who identifies with that down to their very core as their identity. I'm not saying that means you shouldn't tell the truth. Mm -hmm. It's just that sometimes even what you should do and actually usually what you should do is painful so the fact that it is painful to tell the truth is honestly should be the expected outcome if it comes out amazing yay but unlikely usually quite painful and i don't think m ever said that it wasn't fair they just said that it was disappointing that their partner didn't wasn't more open to it and that they're hurting because of that. I mean, the thing is, your partner is just going through a range of protest gestures. Your partner's entire world collapsed. Yeah, you've just tried to change the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so they're responding in any way you can, because I noticed some of those other terms, like when you said they were saying, well, it's just about cheap sex. And you were like, no, 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 it's all about the emotions. Listen to how I'm in love with this person. And then they got more upset. Well, the reason for that is they didn't tell you it was about cheap sex to denigrate what you care about. They did that to defend their own mental position. Mm -hmm. So they would have felt a lot better if it had been about just sex. If you were like, yeah, it is just about sex. That's just what I want. They would have said, well, then you shouldn't have it because it's not moral. But they also would have felt very good and secure in the fact that they were the one true love of your life still. And when you went, no, 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 I'm really in love with this person. They were shattered because they had this belief that they occupied this magical place for all time in your life. And so, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And a lot of the negativity is them trying to avoid giving legitimacy to your claim and avoid feeling displaced. Right. I mean, that is hard and it is harsh and you wish it was otherwise. But from their perspective, it feels like you've lied to them and then just changed everything. So I don't think they would be as harsh if you met a polyamorous person. So I think if you just met a polyamorous person on the street, they would have been like, oh, that's interesting and had a conversation about what it was like. But for you to say I'm polyamorous puts them in this massively defensive position where they have to decide about that. Which the other thing is, and we'll, we said this in the coming out episode, the absolute hardest way to hear someone is coming out is when they come to you and say, I'm in love with another person and so I want to open a relationship mm -hmm. because that just feels like, and by many, many, many conventional definitions of cheating is monogamous cheating. Yeah. So it sounds like you're coming to them and saying, I'm cheating and I want you to legitimize it and allow me to cheat. I think it's absolutely true that it is very common that you can't have both people that you wanted at the beginning of that scenario. If you'd had feelings for this person and that made you realize you wanted to be non-monogamous and you said, but there's no way I can act on it because I've made all these commitments. And then you went to your partner and said, I realize about me that my truth is I'm non-monogamous and I would like to start transitioning to a non-monogamous monogamous life with you and see what that looks like over the next two to three to four to five years. And I'm committed to going through all the research and all the work with you and seeing if we are still right for each other or seeing if we can make that transition. I think you would have gotten a much more positive, open, okay, let's talk about it. Let's go to therapy response than coming to them and saying, I'm in love with this other person. Yeah. Because their mind went immediately to being replaced. 
Yeah, and that's what's happening is your your partner's fighting for your marriage. They're fighting for your relationship. And the threat to the relationship right now is you. So they're fighting you. So yeah, it's, it, it sucks. It sucks. Mm-hmm. It's a really tough situation to be in. And yeah, it's it's incredibly unfortunate. I do I do want to add that I'm going to email you personally mm-hmm. too. You'll probably get the email before the podcast comes. You out. You will definitely get the email before the podcast <laughs> comes. Out. But yeah, and I've also worked with a few people, and like I said, I really think that more people the relationship falls apart when it's open this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I have seen. I mean, there are relationships where I know people who identify as monogamous dating non-monogamous people, but almost all the people that I've run into where that's working, the monogamous person one doesn't think monogamy is better than non-monogamy, hmm. and two identifies monogamous as being, I only want to be with one person. Whereas it seems very clear from the language that your partner is using that they identify monogamy as being, we We. want to be in a closed relationship. (laughs) Yeah. And obviously also that they view monogamy as the gold standard, the gold star. You grow out of being ridiculous and polyamorous. It's not an actual adult position. And you grow Mm. into the wonders of monogamy. And if that position can't change i have never seen it work i've seen it sort of limp on for five or ten bitter years which is far worse for the children in the relationship than a cleaner earlier break that lets you start building healthy relationships would be i have never seen that pan out so if you talk to your partner and they say well i just think monogamy is better and that polyamory is lesser Then you have to decide, because I I do think that years with someone have value. I think that lifelong relationships yeah. have value. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. at a relationship that's 17 years in, you really have to decide if you had to choose between never being with anybody else or giving up this relationship, which would be more important to you? Because obviously there's things in life like... You can, and you can even know about yourself that you can be the person that's on the opposite side, right? So remember I said there's a lot of really wonderful, compassionate, monogamous people that identify as monogamous, that date polyamorous people, marry polyamorous people, are wonderful polyamorous partners, but they just are themselves. You could be that, but the other way. You could still realize that you're polyamorous, do the reading, learn about yourself, identify as polyamorous, and simply choose to be monogamous with this partner because the value is worth it to you. And so you can still be authentic to yourself Mm -hmm. and do that, understanding the situation that you're in. And it may be that that's the right value structure for you because it may be that starting from scratch at wherever you're at in your life doesn't seem like it's going to be worth it for you. I do think the other thing that I heard in the email was that you just stopped talking to your other friend that you were interested in but didn't even tell them why. Yeah, I didn't say that when I was summarizing. Yeah, I remembered that in the email, when we we read the email together, we were just trying to summarize it for time reasons. But in the email, they do say that they stopped talking to the person they have feelings for, but didn't tell them why. And that person's, they said, wondering where they've gone and stuff. So I assume there's some sort of message from them, like, where are you? Why aren't you answering my messages? What's going on? That is that is unacceptably like that is that is bad that's unfair that is really unfair yeah. mm-hmm. it's really unkind that person deserves to know what happened yes and they deserve not to be cut off so first of all i think you need to go to the very next couple's therapy session and say we're harming this person who we've just dropped in the middle of nowhere he used to be our close friend who we were so close to i was in love with them i need to at least be able to talk with them again and not tell them how i feel right now maybe because maybe it's not the time for that mm-hmm. but at least keep them 
back in the loop and say, I'm sorry, I will tell you someday what happened. But for right now, I just need to pass on that until I'm at a place where it's acceptable for me to tell you. You need to band-aid that a little bit, for sure. That's a person. That's a human being that you've just cut off from an incredibly important source of human connection and love and left them wondering why these people that they thought cared about them don't care about them. So at minimum, if you can't do that, if you can't band-aid it, you just need to tell them, I was in love with you. And my partner says, I can't talk to you if I want to keep talking to them. But I will say this, I would never, ever, ever anymore be with someone that said I could not see another person. They should trust you if you promise not to let it go any further until you've resolved it with them, that they can take your promise. And if they can't, then you have you mm-hmm. don't have any trust. You have no foundation in that relationship. I want to add that M does not state that their partner has said there could be no contact. M has just ceased contact is all it says. I'm not trying to assume that, but it's a it's common. It's a common demand. Yeah. Mm for jealous partners. So I just wanted to say if that's the situation. Because I gave the advice for go back to talking, but it might be that they say, well, like, if I did, I would lose M, in which case you might have already you you don't want that. You don't want to be harming people for your partner. That's a toxic relationship dynamic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're going through this. It sucks for sure. There is a lot of empathy and sadness there. We're, We're very sorry that you're in that pain and that you're having this. And for all of our listeners who've gone through something like this and who have had to suffer something mm-hmm. like this. God, does it hurt. And I'm sorry that your partner is in pain. And I'm sorry that your friend that you fell in love with is is most likely in pain as well because they don't know what's going on. Right. And please don't regret being honest. Yes. Oh yeah. my God. Yes, please. That is a very good note. If it didn't come up now and you are truly polyamorous, it was going to come up eventually. You, you were going to fall in love with yeah. somebody else. So yeah, so it's definitely better now than later if you were going to eventually figure that out. I'm curious as to if, you know, they've been together for 17 years. I'm curious as to if this has happened before and it was just brushed off. Because M says that it de- this definitely doesn't feel mm. like a, quote, little crush. Sure. So I wonder if there have been... Little uh, crushes? Yeah. <laughs> if there have been little <laughs> crushes that could have been something more, but yeah. did get successfully brushed off some way or the other. Yeah, it's an interesting yeah. question. Yeah. So Can't if, imagine. Uh, if, if and when I get an update, I will share it um, with you all and the listeners. So I guess that's the one thing that we <laughs> could... I don't know how I would even do that get a random diehard monogamous person to be part of the part of the group (laughs) because i'm trying to picture like not having crushes on people sometimes and i can't like i can't Uh picture not liking (laughs) other human beings romantically who are attractive and funny and fun and bonded to me and i don't i don't see how that would happen and honestly i don't think most monogamous people see how that happens which is why they don't have like friendships with the Mm -hmm. opposite sex as adults basically, because they also know that that doesn't happen, but they think that it's in a sort of serial cheating, breaking up marriage sort of way, not a positive just function of the human condition. I think at any given moment in my, uh, my life from like kindergarten on, I have had at least two crushes at the same time. All right. I just crush on people. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So to the topic the episode is named for, and it's not a topic you are probably familiar with because we had to make up a name because people hate the name. It's like that word moist. Moist. (laughs) I was just thinking that. (laughs) It's like voted the most hated word one year or something. Yes. This is very similar to moist. I don't get it. I don't get that, but we can move on. You don't get the word moist being hated? I don't. Yeah, I don't. Like It's just like moist. I don't. Yeah, I don't know know either. A lot of people just don't like it. does nothing to me. I don't know. I don't care for it, but... Mandy made a face. Not a good face. Yeah. 
sexual safety agreement chains. So what this is, is we have talked about fluid bonding in the past, and we've gotten some emails from people saying fluid bonding is bad as a term, that it causes them to cringe every time they hear it, that they don't think it's particularly ethical. And they brought up mostly explanations that fall outside of how we have self-defined in the show. So I don't have too much of a problem for how we've used it in the past because, you know, you set your terms. So we said, here's what you mean by it. Here's what we're doing with it. And I think that the way we used it was fine and it was ethical. But they made a lot of good points about how the larger community uses it. This word has mostly disappeared from community discourse. And I think we think that the conceptual stuff, or at least the conceptual stuff that we developed, if it wasn't widespread out of that term, is valuable conceptual elements. Because I sort of took that at the beginning of my interest journey and sort of ran with the concept and expanded it into how it would be done ethically. Some of the contention with fluid bonding. First is people just think the term is gross because it has the word fluid in it. And that's the sort of the moist reference, which that doesn't really matter to me. Although if it makes the term unusable, then it's relevant, I guess, in sort of an adoption sense. To me, fluid is such a vague term. What fluid are we talking about? If we kiss, we're fluid bonded. Yeah, because almost nobody means kissing when they say fluid bonding. I've never seen a definition that includes kissing. But in some of it means, you know the juices and some of it means blood and but you know what I mean like it can mean multiple different things I know someone who uses that as having sex with someone while they're menstruating that is really hilariously specific but that's that's how they use it and to me the the word is it's too vague well it's vague without being clear that it's vague right it's not specific enough so something like sexual safety agreement doesn't tell you what the agreement is but it makes it clear that you have to make out an agreement so at least it's in the description that it's vague right whereas fluid bonding sounds like it's a specific thing sort of like where a complaint with boyfriend girlfriend in monogamous culture sounds like it's a specific thing to be dating to be together to be exclusive but has vastly different rules depending on who you ask. So it would be much better if it was like dating agreement. We have a dating agreement. What's your dating agreement say? (laughs) It's a lot better than we're dating. I actually like that a lot. I've definitely got into arguments with partners about fluid bonding though, because it meant one thing to me. Right. And it meant something completely different to my partner. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge blow up argument. Sure. Because in my eyes, they fluid bonded. Yeah. So right. it's it's not specific enough, I think, for relationship agreements and for for conversations, especially in the poly world. Yeah, you need to actually have the discussion about what it would mean. And so that's one reason to have the different term. And then the other reason is that the term originates out of BDSM play terms. And that's right, right? That's what we found when we looked it up. Yeah. Yeah. I would say BDSM scene and lifestyle terms. Yeah. You use okay. the word play. Yeah. It uh, makes it not as serious because people who are fluid bonded to BDSM are very serious about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, part of the problem is that in those places, you are intentionally engaging in consensual objectification play often. So it's quite possible that the fluid bonding is part of that consensual objectification play all the way down to I own who you can fluid bond to or I own your unique fluid bonding or and so some of those connotations came over into its usage in non monogamy. And then also the people object to the fact that the word bonded sounds very hierarchical. Yeah, it sounds hierarchical. And it sounds desirable and like it's a higher level so i mean i guess those are all sort of hierarchy Mm. elements so it's a privilege problem because what we've said when we've talked about it is we've said well if you think that non-barriered sex 
is automatically more valuable or superior or more desirable or shows deeper emotional connection than barriered sex, we think that that's an issue. Yeah. Unless it's like a fetish, but then you have to know that it's a fetish, right? Or something like that. But the problem is that when you have the word bonded, it sounds like it's... It sounds like a relationship escalator thing, too. Like, you're going to work up to being fluid bonded. So we're going to start. Yeah. yeah. It's like a vetting period. We're not. And we're going to work up. And I mean, I know it definitely has in my previous relationships at times. Me too. Mm -hmm. In my younger years, like it was fluid bonded was a a level of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of what it happened is that we realized that the complaints against the term were numerous enough, the way people were aware of the term was numerous enough that it is problematic. Even if we think that the application can be very helpful, the term itself is sort of unsalvageable. And we don't usually try and invent a new term, but when we do, they're always hilariously long acronyms because it's always me doing it and I want to be very specific. Can we do sex sack? I like that. Sex sack? Yeah. That sounds... It is... That is a... Yes. Did you did you already introduce it? Sexual sexual safety agreement change. Chains. Chains. That, did I not did I not say it right? You said change. You said sexual oh. safety agreement change. Don't do that. Sexual safety agreement change. That's <laughs> your sexualist <laughs> your sexual safety agreement chain is your sex sack. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's gonna be right up there with fluid bonded for gross. Yes. I just wanted to pose it for for comedy's sake. Your sex sack. That's your balls. Your sex sack is your balls. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm gonna stick with uh, sexual safety agreement chains. And not actually acronize it. It's SSAC. I'm just gonna mostly write it out. <laughs> I think I'm going to write it out, actually. I don't even think I'm going to say SSAC. It won't be an acronym. It'll be a four-long word thing with dashes. <laughs> yes. But yeah, so the thought is basically in the wider goal of creating your safer sex profile with you and your partners so everybody can meet their needs of feeling safe enough to engage in enjoyable sexual play and get their needs met, there should be a tool somewhere in the toolkit that accounts for trust between you and your partners and your metamors to meet certain goals that might not otherwise be meetable to add a layer of safety, which is obviously far from perfect people can cheat people can break the rules and you know that but that's the same as when people use monogamy as a form of sexual safety they know that people can break the rules and of course that's always going to be the case and you do add in an incentive for rule breaking when you make these sorts of multiple sexual agreement chains because now there is potentially if the person very much values unbarriered sex of loss for honestly telling you that they slept with somebody else without barriers which we've often cited as the primary reason people might want to cheat in monogamous relationships. But as a philosophy podcast, our general belief is that your ability to perceive your world, to make decisions about it, to know the people in your life that you're in love with, and to be able to form trusting bonds that actually have value over and above pure placebo effect should mean that these should make you safer than not having them at all. If you don't have them at all, but engage in the same amount of unprotected sex, because then you just don't know what the other people are doing and you have no sense about what your risk profile that you're engaging in is other than potentially lots of conversations about what the risk profile is. Yeah, you get to decide what sexual safety looks like to you Mm -hmm. and you need to communicate that in these discussions all right so let's go back real quick and just go over what we mean these look like because not everyone might remember our fluid bonding discussions and we also have had thoughts since then what no thoughts since then (laughs) the basic upshot is that when you are thinking about 
who you want to sleep with and how. One of the areas that gets difficult around multiple partners and your own sense of safety is if I am sleeping with a partner who is then sleeping with partners who are then sleeping with partners at a certain level, I don't know those partners. They're too far removed for me to know them at all. I can't feel connected to them or feel like they're going to make choices that work for me. And it's just not really possible to get everyone in an entire polycule to sit down and agree to rules together. Because if you did that in some polycules, it'd be like 200 people, most of whom don't know each other. Right. And so that's just not really going to happen. So what you are doing is you're writing up a portfolio that says, here's the limit at which I feel safe or which I feel comfortable or ethical engaging in certain behaviors, whatever those behaviors might look like. And this can be incredibly varied. For example, Mandy's and my profiles look almost exactly opposite as I understand them because my partner is still breastfeeding. My live-in nesting partner is still breastfeeding and we have unburied sex. So my threshold for safety for other partners that I or she would have unburied sex with is lower than it might be if it wouldn't like directly affect my children right now, for instance. Right. But we still want it to be possible to have unburied sex with people that are our partners if that's what our partner wants and if we want it and if everybody's willing to do it in a way that can meet our sense of safety for ourselves and for our children, then that's something that we would like to do. The rest of the the agreement is sort of a less draconic version of the more common fluid bonding system, he'll used to call the fluid bonding system, but without the weird hierarchy or sense that it's better to be having unburied sex. I'm very happy to just have all buried sex with my partners. So if I have a partner and that partner wants to have any number of partners and never talk to you about anything, they're on the buried sex list, we're good. Mm-hmm. You know, you the can... buried sex list. <laughs> it sounds like it's like the no-fly list. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't, mean it that way. I don't mean it that way, you know, I and mean, we can have great engaging, mentally bonding, barriered sex, and I won't have to panic. And I think I have unreasonable fears around STIs. I do. I, now, I, I think I, yeah, I was going to ask you, Michael, what, what does, what does barriered sex look like to you? I have the same question, actually. That's, um, I don't want what it looks like. I want, <laughs> I <laughs> no want, photos. right. No, no photos. I just want a definition of barriered sex. What is included in barriered sex? Yeah, well, so you should definitely write out what you mean. When, so for all everything in this agreement, you should write out definitions for your terms. Yes. So for my terms in this sense, barriered means barrier to any sexual fluid exchanges. So condom for oral sex, condom for vaginal or anal sex, dental dam for cunnilingus. That's the same as what, what I have. That's the same rules that I have. So I, I was curious about that because I was like, huh, you seem about as strict as I am. So I was curious what it was. Yeah. I have the exact same policy. <laughs> and then generally try to avoid those fluids outside of that space, obviously. Like I'm not quite the completely wrap yourself in head to toe plastic before you have sex kind of person. <laughs> I've read in books that like you can be even safer by wrapping yourself with saran wrap, basically, and then poking a hole in it and wearing a condom. And I'm like, I'm not going to go quite that far. Uh, those are usually in sex parties with stranger kind of guidelines. Oh. Not so much like someone you're also, you actually know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so right. You know, if the fluids under which STIs are normally transferred, although some STIs are transferred by spit as well, get on you, then that's a problem. Or just skin-to-skin contact. Right. Like the herpes in the... Yeah, yeah. But you try to avoid those things, mm-hmm. but you try to yeah. avoid those things in day-to-day life. Like, I try to avoid bumping into or hugging people with open cuts on their bodies if I have open, you know, well, generally at all. Right. But if I have open cuts on my body especially, and you try to avoid sharing sodas with people that you're not sure if there's a risk for sharing sodas with those people, that sort of thing, like food, drink, etc. Currently, we try not to share air. Yeah. Right now, we're in like the (laughs) ultimate, I'm in like a plastic bubble, I don't go near anybody, no sharing at all approach. 
I don't even want to share air droplets with you, much less your your spit directly in my mouth. So. <laughs> so then I alluded to this earlier, and Mandy, if I have this wrong, I think we've talked about this a few times, so I think I understand it, but if I'm misrepresenting, by all means, please correct me, has some sort of the opposite arrangement where she and the partner that she has living with her for the longest, they do barrier all the time so that they can then do whatever they want with other people without having to constantly talk to each other about it because that comes up more often that direction and because that's what they like. They actually prefer that barrier <laughs> yeah. sex. So that's what they're really into. So great. Yeah. And it definitely helps with we're as about as egalitarian as you get sure. as far as a relationship goes. And so, yeah, we don't check in with each other as much as maybe some people do. And so, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's, it's a safer bar for us. And we just, we prefer barriered sex mm-hmm. as well. So. Yeah, and that's, I think, an important note, again, for people who think that there's more value in unbarried sex. Some people just prefer barriered sex. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously, you know, I'm going to meet people. And for that person, I have met people and they said, it's very important for me to eventually have unbarried sex with you if we're going to stay in a long-term relationship. That's part of how I bond. It's part of how I feel close. And I think that's fine as long as you have all those I statements. It's mm-hmm. not, it's how people bond. It's how people feel close. It's how people express value. Those are not true. But as long as it's about, it's how one of the ways that I do it, there's an incredible rainbow of sexual expression and your sexual expression is totally valid and I'm into it, but it's not a comment on your value to the relationship. And so then these sorts of agreements could potentially create spaces where you can say, okay, well, our system is you have to be in some sort of closed unbarriered loop, which could be like, maybe I'm dating a person. Uh, Alex is one of our names, right? Alex and Jamie, right? All right. So I'm dating Alex and Alex is dating Jamie and Alex and Jamie have unbarriered sex, but they're having barriered sex with everybody else. And me and my partner have unbarriered sex, but we're having barriered sex with everybody else. And then after two months of maintaining that arrangement, which is how long it takes for STI, the, the whole realm of STIs to show up, like HIV can take up to two months to show up and test. We both go and get tested. Oh, I it was three. Okay. Well, whatever it is. Uh, is it three months now? <laughs> I don't know. Last I heard it was three, but I haven't looked into it within the last year. So go on. Okay. Well, I haven't, it hasn't come up recently that I needed <laughs> to ask that question. I haven't been with anybody in four months. Well, that makes it really easy. Go get tested. We're set. Right. Yeah. You know, I would look it up, but so whatever it is that the current best practices for how long you wait are two months, three months, whatever. And I think I might've done something where like, I might've looked it up and it said like two months is like a 95% confidence margin, but three months is much better. You know, it's like, it's a hundred or something. And I was like, 95 is enough for me if there's no symptoms and no other reason to think. And, you know, we're gonna get tested every six months still. That's another important point we'll come back to. So after that time period, whatever our time period is, has lapsed, we all go get tested. And then we share, okay, here's what our current statuses are. Is that comfortable for you? Does that feel safe for you? Right. Does whatever that look like? Is that an acceptable risk profile for you? And then we'll all keep having barrier sex with all other partners unless they also want to add in to this and this is where the chain comes in because then this ends up being a chain where I just have to trust that my partners have good judgment and they have good judgment and they have good judgment but I'm not just trusting that the further someone is down a chain like this the safer they actually are for me right so if I'm dating Alex and Alex is dating Jamie and Jamie dates somebody new but I'm not dating Jamie then if Jamie gets an STI there's a period of time it takes for Jamie to get the STI and then be able to pass it 
a period of time it takes for Alex to then get the SCI and be able to pass it. There's a period of time it takes for me to get the SCI and then be able to pass it. So my partner is actually quite insulated from the other partner as long as you're maintaining all other good safety practices for multiple sexual partners. Because this was the other claim people had about fluid bonded is it, it did the same sort of thing that people do when they are quote monogamous where when I go to the doctor and they say, okay, so you're married so you don't need STI tests every year at your physical. I go, what? No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I absolutely need STI tests. Yes. I need to know if I'm ill and I need to check my own health. But if you know you're sleeping with other people, all barrier protection is sometimes called safer sex because it's not safe sex. You can still, as we said, you can get sick from skin contact. You can get sick from hugging. Yes. You can get sick from blood touching. And the more that you have in your life, the more likely you are to get something that other yeah. people should be able to make decisions about for their own safety profile and sense of security. Right. That factor does multiply. Right. And it does multiply. So you should still be doing, you know, whatever you would have been doing anyway, which is either yearly checkups or at a certain level of partners, maybe every six months get a screening for STIs, depending on if you can afford it and safety and yeah. all the rest. And I want to add that if you're staggering your tests along that chain line as well. Sure. Yeah. Along that chain, it's much better. You'll be able to to identify an STI quicker in your chain if you're staggering your testing out. Sure. Instead of everybody going at the same time every six months, because everybody's got it by then. <laughs> and you can even do it, you know, just with the people that you, again, because of the like communication works in these chains, you can just do it with the people who are closest to you. So like if... I yeah. can say my partner and I will be six months off, which is the best we can do. And then if either of us gets a new partner, we'll try and have them do in between us at three months. So eventually, if we both had partners or we had two, one person and two partners, you'd have every three months. And yeah, as Mandy said, stagger those tests, try not to do them all at the same time. And this is all the sorts of creative brainstorming that can go into your sexual safety agreement chains and the kind of creative problem solving you can use to what, what I want to say is basically buff up your safer sex cocktail because your safer sex toolkit isn't 100% limited to barriers, nor should it be. Even if you're using right. all barriers for everyone, you need yearly STI screenings. Yep. That's not the end of the toolkit, is the upshot. And if you are going to want to have multiple unprotected partners, but you also, like Sarah or I, are a little bit paranoid about STIs for whatever reason, this is a way that you can create some of that safety for yourself if you think you can make good decisions about your partners. And I don't know why you're dating if you don't think that right. like if you think yeah. you can't trust your partner you should be using barriers no matter what your agreement looks like it should just be yeah. all barriers with every partner all the time if you don't think you can trust people or you're not worried about it but if you're not worried about it then you wouldn't be using any of this anyway true and so i think if you want to bring this up with a partner that you're worried about with that you can definitely reassure them what the barrier or non-barrier status is like you might have preferences like it's just like i enjoy this more but it's not about how you value them it's about creating the most autonomy and decision for both of you really because what i don't want to be is i don't want to be the partner who constantly berates my other partners about their or worries about either one what who they are and aren't sleeping with yeah and let me tell you that's one of the great things about me and my living partner my my nesting partner having buried sex is that we don't that's just it's just not a fight that we have it's one less thing that we could disagree on or fight about and sure so we just decided to eliminate that altogether yeah and that's great obviously if, if yeah. you can do it that's not to say that we don't tell each other sure sure you know well communication if, is important to every relationship right yeah. i just wanted to add that it, it's not like we don't talk about our sex lives with each other we do we're best friends 
(laughs) But it's not something that has to be checked in with before it happens or directly after it happens or if, you know, there's not panic if for some reason unbarriered sex does happen. Sure. So it just, it makes it easier for us. Yeah. The other thing I like about this change in language is it it's a lot less abrupt for if someone sleeps with someone that isn't inside of your sexual safety agreement chain without barriers or outside of the way that the agreement is set up, whatever it is. Because your agreement might allow certain types of unbarriered sex to take place. It's your danger threshold, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's not one way to do this. It's not a one size fits all agreement. You, I know a lot of people who are super comfortable with oral sex, but not comfortable with vaginal or anal sex. And so totally fine if you want to have that agreement chain in your group, because you know what your risk profile that you're creating for yourself is and you're accepting those risks or not. In the language of we're fluid bonded, if you do that, you're suddenly not fluid bonded anymore. Right. We are not fluid bonded anymore. You broke the bond. It's gone. It's dead. But if we have a sexual (laughs) safety agreement, there's a part of the agreement that just says how we adjust the way we interact if you sleep with someone who's not in the agreement chain. And so you're still in the sexual safety agreement chain, just where you are as far as barrier use relative to certain partners in the chain changes, but you're not out of the chain. You just have to shift how you're relating with or without barriers, which is what you have to do anyway. And that's where your freedom is. Because that was the other complaint. People said, well, now I own you. You can't sleep with someone else. You should never have a sexual safety agreement that says you are not allowed to sleep with someone else without protection, without talking to me or getting my approval. Right. Yeah, or without a barrier. Uh, you can have without talking to me. Like, maybe you should tell them. I, I like to be informed if you and can. Um, but yeah. not in my agreement. Like, my agreement isn't part of it. Like, it's like, I'm going to go sleep with this person. I'm really into it. And I don't want to use barriers tonight. I just want you to know or something. Like, Yeah. yeah. And see, and I think that, I, I mean, I think that you should not have an agreement that says that you can't sleep with someone without barriers, period. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. You should not have an agreement that says that. With my agreements, when I've made them, it's like, okay, well, I mean, if you do do that, just let me know, and then we can sleep barriered. But like, it's not a problem with me. I just we just need to be informed and on the same page. Exactly. So that just allows you to have control of your sexual safety, my safety, my body. Right. Right. So then that's that's why I do like that more than anything else about the language change is that you're not out of the agreement at all. Yeah. You haven't left okay. the agreement. You're still complying by the agreement. And the agreement does not include a no unbarriered sex. It just says if you have no unbarriered sex, you have to tell everyone else. And then they get to choose whether or not they want to sleep with you without barriers or if they want barriers. And if they want you to go through, you know, being barriered for two months with either not this person at all or with the new partner as you guys are the new, you know, before you have unbarriered sex and take tests or whatever, you know. So I do like that language change a lot. It does sound a lot less harsh. I do feel like... It doesn't make rules. It just communicates your own boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a partner that I have unbarriered sex with. and, And that's... We have our personal boundaries for that. And if that partner, you know, has unbarriered sex with someone else, then we don't have unbarriered sex you know, for us for a certain amount of time. Right. So it that's just that's our personal boundaries. And vice versa. He he doesn't if I have unbarriered sex with someone else, then it's not gonna happen with him for a, a, a certain amount of time. So it's not a rule so much as it's just our own personal boundaries. Mm-hmm. I think that's totally fair. And a lot of this stuff also I think has to do with 
affluence or wealth, you know, and I hear people say, well, this isn't fair. You should just take complete control of your own or responsibility for your own sexual safety. You shouldn't say to someone, well, they shouldn't have unburied sex or we'll have to wait a certain period of time to have unburied sex with me. I think part of that comes from the ability to have, like if I could afford the whole blanket of STI tests, because the, you know, your insurance covers a good no- number of them, especially if you say, oh, I was recently exposed. I was sleeping with someone who I found out was sleeping with somebody else. They'll give you certain discounts and stuff if you're on, mm-hmm. and this is in America, of course, certain mm-hmm. health plans. But if you go in every two months and say, can I get the full screening? That's like $250 yeah. or something, you know? And if I was making like six figures, I would do that. I would just be like, every two months, getting just tested go, yeah. regardless, yeah. top to bottom, my two-month test set. I mean, I would still have an agreement like this. I wouldn't necessarily need to think about agreement chains because I would just have the direct agreements with people. And I would just be like, and if anything happens, we just wait two months, we try again. Because I can afford to do that an infinite number of times. But I can, I basically can afford to do this yearly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the extra costs because they only covers the big four on my insurance and everything else is a marginal cost to get higher and higher the more tests I want to have. Therein, chains are helpful because it deals with the financial reality of my life with insurance which is I can't constantly check for my safety. So if you're going to want to constantly sleep with other people without barriers, I would just really like our relationship to be about having barriered sex so that I don't have to think yeah. about that. Yeah. And so I think that's the thing because people will say, well, you know, it's not fair. Even that's still something. And I'm like, but it's just part of reality. Like finances are real. Yeah. Sexual safety boundaries are real. This is a tool that you can use to manage them. And I think it's a tool that because the genesis for the concept was so toxic, people aren't talking about anywhere right now that I've seen and which I think is potentially valuable to our community. And I think people are doing it. I just don't think they have a name for it. And I always think having a name for it is helpful because that's how you discuss it. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been in the situation where I couldn't, I, di- I couldn't afford to have STI testing on a super regular basis. Sure. As have I. My choice at that point was to just not expose myself. Yeah, I mean, you can get to the point where you can't afford it at all because you're not even on healthcare and you just don't expose yourself like at all or have very little sex or not even have partners or... Yeah, and then that's where I was. I just didn't have healthcare. And so I just... Everything was barriered if Mm -hmm. it happened at all. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I was just... I was as safe as I could possibly be. And I made sure that any other partners that I, you know, that I had knew, you know, when this happened, it was barriered, you know, we're going to be barriered. Yeah. Because there was no way for me to go test at the time. Sure. So I was just as transparent as possible (laughs) about all sexual interactions, even though they were barriered. Or you're going to pay. I've definitely offered that sometimes for people who have health to me and they're like, I want to do something sooner. And I'm like, if you want to pay to send me to the doctor to get to get the screening. Then score. Yes. Awesome. Right. Cool. But my next scheduled one is in four months. (laughs) So we can either wait till my insurance can pay for it or... If you've got a big budget, then yeah. awesome. So I think that's most of the things that I wanted to cover with that. Do either of you have questions or things that you wanted to say that you didn't say? I'm just glad that we're trying to come away from that term. It just is so hierarchical to me, and I feel like it's used to create a power position. Yeah, well, and I guess that's a good point. If anyone's trying to use this to control you, out, get out. This is all about yeah. creating more choice for you. I, again, I 100% stand by 
if they try to say you can't have unburied sex with other people, that is not an acceptable basis for an agreement. That's just controlling you. Which, of course, if you want to not have sex with other people and you want to volunteer that that you're already not going to do unburied sex with other people because of your own sexual safety boundaries. And as long as, again, as all of our relationship agreement advice, there's a clause where you can revisit that should you change your mind in the future, then, like... You know, whatever is fun for you guys to write down is fine, but nobody should come to you and say, yeah, <laughs> I would yeah. really like it if you agree that it's just us forever and that we only have barriered sex with everybody else, because that obviously is all about making agreements about other partners before those partners exist, before you've had experiences with them, before you've had emotional connections with them, before they've had a voice or a seat at the table, and all of that's hideously unfair. Right, yeah. All agreements should be open to revision constantly. If other people point out, hey, this thing in your clause, whatever it is, is actually unfair to new people, it's not meeting the needs of new people in an ethical way, you should definitely have that discussion and try and fix that to the best of your practical ability. Because again, a lot of privilege isn't avoidable. It's only something that you can center and do your best to prioritize around. You know, my partner who has shared mortgages on everything I own mm -hmm. is going to pull some of my attention, even in a non-romantic yeah. way. Even if we stop being romantic, they would still take like 40% of my attention to maintain the house, maintain the children. Right. <laughs> I think that my nesting partner uh, pulls much more attention as a as a home partner than a relation than a romantic partner anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as I think as always happens, the longer yeah. you go on together, because you just keep having these shared interests. You have kids, which is, I mean, kids pull more focus than my romantic right? partner as a dude does. Right. And uh, all of that focus is part is tacked onto them because they're my co-parent. They're, they're always going to pull that. So if you come in to date me and go, I want to I wanna see an identical number of hours spent with me as this person, I'm like, and, and I will. I will when I've been with you for 13 right, years. Right. <laughs> but right now, I will give you the number of hours I gave them when we were dating. Right. Like, yep. That's that I equity. I them. I had a That's life. I had a house. Yeah. I had a job. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Yeah, the more roles. And trust me, most of the hours I do with them are not fun. If you want to come over and help me clean for three hours, you are right. invited. The more roles wanna... <laughs> that you share with someone, the more attention that that person's gonna gonna need. Yeah. Right, but but being aware of that, as yes. we said in many of the episodes, and trying to do special things to the other person so they know how much you they matter to you and that they're not being displaced just because of hierarchy. And yeah, you have to be aware of it. You have to fight it constantly. You always have hierarchical privilege. So some people are going to say, well, even with this, there's hierarchical privilege because you guys are already in a pre-existing relationship. You're already sleeping with that other person without barriers, and this new person has to come into that. But let me tell you, this is exactly how I treated being single. Yeah. 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 When I was single and monogamous, I'd be like, so have you slept with anybody without barriers in the last three <laughs> months? Have you had a test since then? <laughs> and then we would get tested together and then we would sleep together. And that was how that went because that's what makes me feel safe in bed. And it's literally the same. So it's not a whole extra like that. My partner went through that. I made them wait. We took tests. So like. <laughs> And that was back when I thought I was monogamous. So let me tell you, there's no difference in the, the boundary that I'm putting up now than I would have put up if you were the only person. It's not a hierarchy thing. It's a personal safety thing. Right. And that's the thing to think about, though. If you think, well, I'm making much harder barriers than I would make if I were single, that might be problematic. That might be hierarchical. Yeah, that's a flag for sure. That's a flag that you should look at. Yeah. And of course, you might just come back and go, well, I should always do this, but I just 
get really thirsty when it's been a while, so <laughs> I would risk my own safety if it was just me. But since I know that other people depend on me, I won't. That's understandable, because that happens in other dependent situations. Like, I would bring a partner home immediately before I had kids. Now I have kids yeah. that depend on me for their mental safety. I don't do that because of their dependence, but would do it if I was suddenly living in an apartment by myself, because the apartment doesn't care who's in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think that that's a, I don't know, I think that's a sad way to look at it, that you wouldn't put your own physical health just as high as your other partners. Well, some people just don't, though. They like to take risks, so they don't mind mm. taking risks. And your partner just has a different level that they, like, has a higher, if your partner has a lower risk tolerance than you that makes them happy, then that is going to change the barrier up to that partner's. And I think as long as, like, that partner then is doing what they would do if they were single. So at least one of the people <laughs> in your chain yeah. is the person who would be acting that way honestly if they were single, and everyone else is just doing that so that person feels comfortable. Like, that's fine for me, because that's caretaking that's the best to me of polyamory uh the best to me of ethical non-monogamy is taking care of all the people in our circle and seeing how love is unlimited seeing how care is unlimited seeing how community is unlimited and so i don't have a problem with that but if it's just a raising the stakes thing to make sure that someone has to jump a hurdle to earn into your yeah. circle earn into your space or as a way for your partner to keep people further from you or lower the chances that you'll get a date or lower the chances your relationship will last like that's <laughs> where all the red flags are and that's yeah. what you need to look out for and i do want to i do want to warn people people do use the old fluid bonding system to do that and i'm sure that if people pick up and run with this whole idea of sexual safety agreement chains, there will be people abusing it in that way. Mm -hmm. There will be someone trying to guilt trip you into a ridiculously impossible agreement that makes it so that no one ever wants to date you because they have to wait. Because when we were researching for this, we looked up articles and we found articles in, you know, Psychology Today and stuff. And the one in Psychology Today, I think, I don't remember what, uh, one of the ones we read said that the standard agreement waiting period was six months of barrier yeah. sex before like, testing. Whoa. And I was like, holy shit. Like, that's forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's a crazy long... I've never met anyone that waits that long. And if you wanted to get to unbarriered sex, that would be an insanely long time to wait. And and even with Sarah's, I think it's three months for safety. That's still double that right, yeah. for like no reason other than just to make you wait right. which again like if it's a game like if it's a bdsm game and it's a dominance and objectification that you've agreed to right. and it's fun for you and like orgasm denial or something like yeah like it's a bdsm goal that you're yeah yeah but it's fun and you're into it but not this is just a random rule that we have because quote everybody should go through no <laughs> right like that person's trying to make it impossible for their partner to date they're trying to own their partner inside of an ethically non-monogamous zone so that they can have some sort of like harem agreement yeah. or yeah. they're truly monogamous and they can't get their partner to agree so they just got they were like okay well i'll be non-monogamous with you if we have this crazy set of rules unless that is of course something that you've both talked about and it's something you both want to work toward and you're both on the same page with it being a level in your relationship that, but you both have to agree on it and that being okay, then you can wait the six months or whatever. And I do want to clarify that by level, uh, Manny meant that level of waiting, not like it's a level up to get to unbarriered sex because it's always going to be unethical if that's a hierarchical step right. that people have to earn yeah. their way yeah. into. You are already out of ethical non-monogamy if that's how this is set up. Please don't quote us. Do not use us if that is what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> that is not what we are. We are not condoning. Nope. 
So there you go. Non-hierarchical sexual safety agreement chains as part of your safer sex cocktail with no agreement that you cannot sleep with other people unbarriered, simply an arrangement for people's safety and needs and an actual respecting of other people's barriers around said same. That is our recommendation to you in this episode and how we hope you use it and how we will use it going forward when we recommend don't forget in your relationships agreements to talk about your sexual safety agreement and if you're going to use sexual safety agreement chains, what that agreement looks like. What those definitions look like, what barriers looks like, all of the above. And always how it can be modified and how it can be modified for new people entering as metamors yeah. and metametamors so that you are not objectifying or controlling other people via remote. And that's done by discussion, discussion, and more discussion, and then rediscuss it. Yep, yep. So I think that's everything yeah. for this week. Yeah, I covered everything that I thought about. Thank you so much for listening and joining us. Yes, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to all of our listeners, and we will see you next Bye. time. Bye. Bye.